Carrie. It's Friday afternoon. Indeed it is. What a better time to have a conversation about medical assistance and dying. There is indeed no better time, as you often tell me, it's not Friday, it's Friday. It is, and I think we're going to have a great conversation with our guest for today, and I'm so glad she could squeeze us into her very busy week. We have the privilege of talking with Tanya Stilson from Lethbridge, Alberta. Who is Tanya, and how have you come across her? So Tanya reached out to us uh, when she got wind of our podcast and said, hey, I'd love to tell you a little bit about my dad who died using me. And so, yes, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to meet her face-to-face, but on Zoom, and we chatted, and she shared a YouTube video of a talk that she had given about what it was like to accompany her dad who used medical assistance in dying. Her dad, John Warren, was a strong advocate and a person who worked really hard to make sure that medical assistance in dying would be available to Canadians, and then needed it himself. And I suspect he probably knew that he would need it and would want to be able to access it. And Tanya's gonna tell us a little bit more about that. And we now know, having thought about MAID and can put some dates together, and Tanya and I talked about this, I think John might have been one of the first people who used track two of medical assistance in dying. And so that's the conversation that I'm looking forward for us to have today. Oh, I'm excited to hear what Tanya has to share with us about John, about John the person, but also about why the advocacy, what was it that he could see in, I'm assuming, based on the limited reading I've done, you know, in those years leading up to the Carter case and 2016, of course, and getting Canadians to a place where the legislation was an option. Well, I suspect Tanya has lots to share. So let's go get that conversation going. Let's do it. Tanya, thank you so very much for joining us today. We're looking forward to hearing more about your dad, John. And so why don't we start off right there? Tell us about John. Who was he? What was he like as a dad? Uh, I'd love to. Thank you. And thank you so much for the invite. Um, My dad was a super interesting man. I always would say that he had this great ability to be both interesting and interested in others. He grew up in England uh, during the war. My mom and him met when they were 13 and 14 and uh, lived a life. Like they immigrated to Canada in 1963. They re-immigrated to England and eventually came back to Canada. And uh, he really lived this beautiful life. He always had this desire to educate himself, educate others, and he was just lovely and most interesting. Um, you know, he was very strong in his opinions. Like, you know, my dad is not, has not been exalted into sainthood. Uh, so he's, uh, he was strong in his opinions and would tell you what he thought in order to, to help you see a vast variety of opinions, I guess. So, yeah, and he... He lived as he died. That's what I love. He was compassionate and empowered and confident and right up until the very, very end. Even our last day, we spent time with the maid team and they had brought a student in and he spent time just to help and educate. So, um, yeah, he passed away on January 4th and he wrote a letter to the editor that was published on January 7th because he wanted to educate people about a green burial, which is an option in here in Lethbridge, Alberta. And his last sentence is, uh, I'm just a guy trying to get people to fear death less and love life more. 
And it was this beautiful mic drop moment. That is a beautiful mic drop kind of moment. And I got that sense from some of the documents that you shared with us to give us a bit of insight into your dad. And while we might not extol him as a saint, um, I I think uh, it, it sounds like he has lived a very full life and contributed to a number of areas. And as you've mentioned, part of the reason that we're talking to you today and about your dad is that he accessed medical assistance in dying at the end of his life. And so I've got a couple of questions. Well, actually, I have a whole list of questions. Let's be honest here. Uh, but let's start off with how did he get interested and connect with Dying with Dignity? Yeah, I think his story is very interesting uh, with his journey with medical assistance. And it began a long, long time ago. And even we had a lovely day on January 1st. Just he and I had some time together and, and he passed on January 4th. And, and on that day, he talked about a movie that he saw in... I think it was the late 50s, and it was called On the Beach. It was this sci-fi drama, which is also interesting because he wasn't a sci-fi guy. But in it, it's this post-apocalyptic movie, and people had the choice of whether they were going to die by radiation or whether they were going to take these sort of government-issued, quote-unquote, suicide pills. And we talked about that on January 1st, and he always said, like, it was always about choice for him. He knew then it was about choice, and he, like, he remembered that, and he would have been in his you know, early 20s about that. So I think that was where it started. And then, you know, then he was very involved with the Sue Rodriguez case, just interested, right? He was very up to date. We would talk about it as a family. Um, he would try and inform us. He would try always to bring forward this conversation. And then really where it became, where he became involved, dad got uh, ill. He got hepatitis B in 2010 and became very ill with that. And he had some treatments afterwards, but he made a promise to himself sort of about 18 months after that, after he started to uh, recover, that he would never, ever again be without the ability to make that decision of if he was suffering, uh, whether he would end his life or not. And so he was kind of just interested and ended up coming across uh, the organization Dying with Dignity. And he and mom flew out to a conference in Vancouver met with the director then, executive director, Wanda Morris, and then became involved on the board. And so his initial role was phoning donors who had given over a certain amount of money. And this was long before, you know, legislation had passed and the changes occurred. And so what he found was these phone calls with donors who had given over $500 and they told him these terrible stories these terrible, terrible stories about how their loved ones had ended their lives because they were suffering. And that really impacted him. And so then he became vice president of the board there and was sort of instrumental during that really interesting period during the Carter case and was really the person that brought forward the story. He did a lot of articles. He did a lot of interviews and was so happy, was so happy on the day that the Supreme Court made their decision. And so, and, and then he exited. Then he ex So he exited about 2015, just as the decision was made. And that's kind of how dad wants, right? He liked the high level things, got to the decision and then let the next people carry that story forward. But he always talked about dying with dignity was one of the best things he ever did uh, for the choice of all Canadians. And so super interesting punchline really is the fact that, you know, when his time came, he was able to make that choice for himself 
um, through track two. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tanya. Um, so much about John Warren I would love to know more about. Um, one of the things that resonated with me listening to your um, Sackpot talk and reading about John uh, was the fact that he had this hiking shirt and that he considered himself a bit of a minimalist. And Kathy and I work in grief spaces. And, and I love the idea that your mom has the shirt, you know, under a pillow or close by because, you know, a death ends a life. It doesn't end a relationship. So we really love that. But I'm also curious about something. Do you think that, you know, his his career as an accountant with numbers and his kind of fervent attitude towards helping Canadians get to this place in terms of the legislation, do you think that being a minimalist and being that kind of person contributed to the fact that he chose made? How do you see those two things as, as kind of a relational with him? Yeah, I think that's interesting that there could be a correlation in there. And I think Dad always was really strong in his values. He just knew them, right? I remember as a kid, he always had this sort of Franklin Covey planner and he would write out his values and he would reevaluate his values. And he just, he knew what he valued in life. And I think that is one of the most important lessons for me is that once you know how steadfast you are and what you value in life, then you know when you're misaligned with those values. And so... In regards to the minimalist lifestyle that he lived, and yet he never shopped. You know, if he ever went into Costco, I would be absolutely shocked. I don't, I, yeah, he, ju he just didn't. It wasn't his world. And so it was a sort of resistance to consumerism as well. And on our last day, one of the interesting things he also said to me was he didn't understand. Yeah, he said he didn't understand that if he wasn't contributing to the world, if it wasn't purposeful, and for him that was... It was broader than just the family, right? If he wasn't contributing to the world, then he would just be a consumer of strawberries. And he didn't see the point in that. And I think it's so interesting that he could just, he couldn't just take it. It had to be this balanced approach and give and take. And yeah, that's where I see the consumerism piece coming forward and uh, the minimalist side. But it really is that strong alliance to his value system. And I really like that connection with the value system and the action that people then take and how it aligns with how they want to be in the world. And while I love me a really good strawberry, and we've just completed strawberry season here in Northwestern Ontario, so I can think of what they taste like and appreciate that. I also know that there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that strawberries are available for things. And that aligns actually with the, the made legislation. And it sounds like your dad was very involved in creating the kind of community that would continue to push for that, to get people together, educate them, help them to understand why choice is important. And so you talked about the Carter uh, legislation in terms of when it went through the Supreme Court of Canada. and. That was in 2016, um, officially, as you said, 2015, but it manifested in uh, 2016. And at that point was what we now refer to as track one. So people for whom death was reasonably foreseeable. So generally it was people with terminal diagnosis, most frequently cancer at that time, could access MAID. And now I'm thinking from having heard your story and understood, and you've alluded to this, your dad wasn't one of those people who would have been approved for track one. 
Well, except he was. So this is a bit of an interesting story because originally, so dad was very, you know, he recovered from hepatitis B and he had 12 years of pain, right? So, and he tried everything in there. He had stem cell transplants. They had, you know, we called it a shaky machine. He had electric socks. He had CBD treatment. Like he did it all. Like he really was very proactive about his health and, you know, and suffered for 12 years. And of course, lots of opioids and pain medications as well. And so when he finally decided to start to investigate his options with Maine, which was uh, September of last year, he had applied, had gone through the application stage, and then he and my mom did what they always did in the fall, and they headed to Mexico. While they were in Mexico, uh, had some change to his medications, he took a turn for the worst and ended up coming back to Canada to proceed with the assessment stage. And the first assessor came in and said, you certainly meet the criteria of MAID. I'm just not sure if it should be track one or track two. And so she took over the weekend and she, yeah, she spent some time and she really did the due diligence of that and came back to us and said, nope, no, I really believe that you are track one. And they, because you're, you know, you're over male life expectancy in Canada, right? His goals of care were the lowest. So I don't know if that's an Alberta thing or an Ontario or a nationwide thing, but it's like, what kind of level of care do you want when an emergency happens? And so his was the lowest level of just comfort care. And so she said, because of those couple of things, she could put him down track one and, and that his death was naturally foreseeable as, as per he's 83, right? And so in that, we then started to prepare that it would be very quick. And we were probably, we were overconfident that this would happen. And, and dad said all his goodbyes to grandchildren and those types of things. And then the second assessor came and said, uh, no, you're track two, which would mean a 90 day wait period. And for me, it was mom and dad and I through the assessment periods. And, and then we would circle in my two sisters. And, and that was one of my very lowest days because it also then meant facing Christmas, which, uh, we were ill-prepared for, I guess. Yeah. And so he eventually, we had a third assessor who also, you know, broke the tie and said, yeah, it should be track two. And, uh, and so then that gave us another 51 days. Can I ask Tanya, what do you think or what did you hear as being the rationale between one assessor thinking, you know, death was reasonably foreseeable and track one, and then the other two assessors thinking that your dad was more appropriate for track two of MAID. Well, I think it's very different what I feel today versus what I felt in that moment. I'd insert a lot of expletives at this moment because we had mentally prepared for track one, right? Dad had started down the process, like I said, all the grandchildren started to say goodbye, um... And then when track two, and he and he knew the assessor, um, which I think made it also problematic because they had done some presentations about the process of made since the legislation had passed when dad was doing some advocacy work in the community. And so she was quite uh, removed from any relationship that she had with dad, which made sense. And my dad was very passionate on that day as you know, he, as he lived his life, like you have to understand he, yes, he was in terrible pain, but he wasn't bedridden, right? I mean, he's 
walking around the house with my mom. They're serving in Nanaimo bars. And I think that's part of it with track one versus track two. He doesn't appear to be very ill. He doesn't appear to be at the end of his life. He doesn't appear to be suffering in a state that others would see. But what they don't see is, you know, the pain meds and how he used to manage all of that. And so he was, you know, consummate salesperson and passionate about what he was doing and really rallied to tell the whole story. And then she said no. And there wasn't much of a conversation. And so, you know, I think we were shocked at that point. And then the third assessor was lovely. She was a lovely, lovely woman. And she really took the time to explain why he couldn't be deemed as track one and being naturally foreseeable. And then we struggled with the fact of it makes no logical sense to us about this 90-day wait period just because your death is not reasonably foreseeable because I would argue on the fact that they have done, you know, anybody applying for the MAID process has done some deep thinking before they got to this point. So it is a big difference in, in terms of the time period for MAID. That 90-day wait period, for your family, it meant Christmas and having to live through another Christmas, which I know in my work in hospice palliative care was often a positive thing for people to have one more Christmas as a family. It sounds like your family saw that differently. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly in the end, on reflection, of course, I'd keep the 51 extra days from that point, right? And so would dad. And he said, like, it gave, you know, this lovely period of time for people to come and say their final goodbyes. It gave us a lovely last Christmas, which was challenging in its own right, but also wonderful. It gave lots of time for people to, you know, say their goodbyes, give them messages, all those types of things. But, but what he, because he always viewed it far beyond just for him. But the illogical side of it, this illogical side of why someone would have to get to this point, make the application, go through the assessments, because that's a time period in itself, right? So you make the application, you get the assessment one, you get the assessment two. If you're like us and didn't like answer two, you went to assessment three. <laughs> uh, but you go through the assessment period and then have this burden of time. And some people would be in a terrible, terrible, terrible state. Uh, you know, one of the things for dad is he was worried about a slip and fall because in track two, you don't have this ability to have, um, I can't remember the terminology, advanced, advanced consent, right? So he was worried about that. And interesting is in my typical dad's fashion, uh, he and I in the last month in mid-December decided that we would pen a letter to Dying with Dignity and BC Civil Liberties. And we had thought about trying to get the media involved and, and we didn't go down that path. But we did write a letter to Dying with Dignity and BC Civil Liberties to kind of explain the pain of track two if you were in a, in a suffering state that was higher level, if we want to call it that, than what dad was able to manage with his. Thank you for that, Tanya. And just to be really clear here, it's not advanced consent, but the waiver of final consent. And that is important di distinction because at this point in Canada, we do not have advanced consent. 
we do have a waiver of final consent, which allows Canadians for track one, yes, for track one, which allows Canadians who have been assessed to be able to have made, to be able to take all the medication that they might require for pain alleviation, to be able to, um, you know, live as long as they want to and recognizing that they might have a decline in cognition, but still to be able to say, at this point, I know I want to have made. And when you talk about the process, when you talk about all of, I'm going to say the hoops that your dad and your family as a unit had to go through for him to be approved to die. I wonder, did your dad ever talk about it or did you ever wonder in the context of dignity? We hear often from people that one of the things that medical assistance in dying affords people is this idea of dignity at the end of life. And I really struggle with the idea of dignity as it's attached to autonomy and control when people have to apply to die which is part of that system. So I'm asking you, did you in that process and in accompanying your dad so intimately as you and your family did, was there dignity in that process? A hundred percent. I cannot say enough about the MAID team. Everyone was very careful and very gentle. Um, I mean, outside of, you know, our reaction and the reaction, the sort of curt response from the second assessor, but it wasn't without dignity, uh, perhaps not a lot of warmth necessarily, but it, it wasn't without dignity. Everyone we dealt with on the May team treated it as a dignified approach. And I think the process is important. I mean, you have to go through the safeguards. I can't see another way where you can you know, go through the application, go through the assessment one, go through assessment two, uh, we actually had the nurse who was going to set the IVs up come over earlier because one of the questions I asked is what could go wrong on that day. And so I suggested she come over and have a look at dad's veins prior to, so in case we needed something else. And it was always, it was always dignified. So I would say, yeah, I, I don't have any, any feeling that it wasn't a dignified approach. That is great to hear. And also, despite some of the challenges and the length of time that your dad had to wait, you still feel that those safeguards are important to be able to have made as an option for people at the end of life. I think the safeguards are critical. I think the safeguards are critical, especially as, you know, we have the broadening of track two coming in March of 2024 as well. So, yeah, the safeguards are extremely important. And I think it needs to be iterated and reiterated. I think sometimes people feel like, you know, pe people say funny things to you. And because people aren't educated about track two, and they only think that MAID is for the use of somebody is, you know, typically people think it's for terminal cancer only. They don't understand, especially with track two, that the safeguards are still there and the criteria is there. It's not that dad was just having a bad day. He has to meet criteria. And the safeguards are in place. Um, I just believe, and he believes strongly, that the 90 days doesn't make sense, especially considering initially with track one was there was this 10-day reflection period, right? And then there was these groups of people, you know, all of the people who provided input and, and medical professionals who, who said that this doesn't make any logical sense. People don't need another 10 days to contemplate to have a reflection period. And yet when they set up track two, 
It's a 90-day process that made no sense to us and still doesn't because, you know, part of that for me is somebody who has track one and is terminally ill, we support them on the fact that they are going to end their suffering. And yet somebody who is deemed track two, somebody somewhere decides that a 90-day assessment period is important. But if you don't want to have any more assessments or you aren't going to go to counseling or you aren't going to have some other alternative measure attempt, then you should be able to say enough's enough. I don't need to suffer anymore. I'm not going to do anything else. You know, when the assessor came and said, you know, John, would you like to look at other treatment options after 12 years? He's, in only the words of my dad, he said, read my lips, which, you know, emphatically meant I'm not interested in any options. So he should have, at that point, been able to end the suffering. Tanya, thank you for that. And I think what you've really said there is um, you've really pointed to this idea that we, who perhaps aren't policymakers, really wonder about the arbitrary, seemingly arbitrary decision to have this sort of 90-day when now we know that the 10-day has now been shifted for track one. And I also wanted to just point out for any listeners who are outside of uh, Tanya's province of Alberta, um, you refer to the May team, Tanya, and like Manitoba and your province of Alberta, there is a team that is responsible for May. In other provinces, of course, it's very different. And so just if you're listening from another province, because our healthcare system is provincial, of course, every province gets to decide how they're going to assess and provide. Um, I think what I'm really curious about at this point is, and you've, you've touched on this about track two, and of course, you've alluded to um, March 2024 about changes to the legislation, because the legislation is ever evolving, of course, and we're always kind of looking at what it's all going to mean. You made it quite clear I feel about the 90 day and why that waiting time seems like the burden of time is is the uh, phrase that you used. Do you think that there would be cases where the 90 day waiting period might be appropriate? Have you had any thoughts about where some policymakers said to themselves, no, wait a minute, the 90 day really needs to happen because X, because I frankly would really love to hear your thoughts on that. I think it should be optional, just like track one. If I want to have longer period of time to get my affairs in order, to have my last Christmas, to continue treatment, then I am given the autonomy to be able to make that choice. It's ironic to me that track two, they actually limit choice. So I think anyone who is applying for MAID would do so with careful consideration. And if they want to have extended period of time, they would be able to. If they don't want to, then there shouldn't, in my opinion, be a, a discrimination just because your death isn't naturally foreseeable. You know, my dad was 83, white, male, educated, right? And so it was mildly interesting to me that at the end of his life, he felt discriminated against. But uh, <laughs> so um, 
but to me, it is discrimination. He's being discriminated against because his death is not naturally foreseeable. And when they call it an assessment period, and there is no further assessment done, you've done assessment one, you've done the assessment two, you can't call it a 90-day assessment period if there's nothing else that happens during that time. There's nothing else that happens during that time. You are deemed track two. You are able to set the day. Everything's in motion. There's nothing logical to me about that person having to continue to suffer and the family having to, that's a long time. Count 90 days out from now, it's a very long time. So for a family who then has to go, my family member made this decision, they met the eligibility, they've gone through the assessments, and now, now we're going to start this period of what? Of waiting, right? And I think that's what, when I asked my question about dignity, that I was trying to get at was this idea of control. And I really appreciate that you interpreted my question I would say appropriately, and that dignity was how you and your dad and your family system was treated by the healthcare providers, that they were respectful, that they treated with kindness, answered questions, put the system in place as well as it could be. But it sounds like there was less choice with track two for your dad, that some of that control and that autonomy that people might want to have wasn't there. And Carrie Lynn and I and people who listen to this podcast have heard me go on this numerous times at this point, but we believe very much in true choice at the end of life for people. And so when we're talking about a complex process, which in some ways I would say medical assistance in dying in Canada is becoming more complex as we have different layers or different opportunities for Canadians available, do you think that true choice is there or what do you think could be done differently so someone like your dad could really have true choice at the end of life? Thank you for the clarity on that. And yeah, I think it is, it is just this 90-day period, right? It's track one and track two process-wise should be very similar. Uh, and, and that's where I think there should be a review of that side. Now, do I think that the policymakers will? No, because I think at this point, you know, track two is such a small percentage of those who have a, you know, a made death because, well, for a number of different reasons, but so I don't know if it will ever get the exposure that it really needs, you know, which is why dad wrote a letter to, you know, the BC Civil Liberties and Dying with Dignity and, and said, please contact me up until January 3rd, which was... <laughs> The day before he died, which is so him, because it's like, I'm going to still be available to this conversation up until, you know, the day before. I, you know, it, it's surprising to me he didn't say I'm available until X amount of time on January 4th. But, you know, he gave himself the evening prior to, to contemplate life, I guess. I love that. Always in service of others, right? And wanting to make sure people were less fearful about dying. So thinking about you know, sorry, can I just interject? Can I just read this paragraph for him? Of course. Yeah. All right. Because I think it's important. Let me just read this piece uh, that dad wrote. So this was written to, uh, this one was Helen Long. And he's laying out the fact, you know, he says in here, 
Uh, he served as vice president of Dying with Dignity and all the things, right? So he talks about the fact he's going to die on January 4th. He talks about the fact he's had 12 years of pain, kind of lays all that out. He talks about the assessment process. And uh, and then he he says here, it appears to me that people like me now and in the future are and will be caught in this ridiculous, illogical situation where we are eligible for MAID. We are suffering every minute and every day and every night. But because our natural death is not immediately foreseeable, we are forced by legislation to wait for the expiration of the 90-day wait period. What is the sense in that? When the government of Canada announced changes to medical assistance in dying, and he quotes uh, the Honourable David Lametti, and says, for those whose death is not reasonably foreseeable, we would create a new set of safeguards there would be a minimum period of 90 days for assessing the made request. This period will allow for exploration, discussion, and consideration of options, which made sense. And I can understand, and legislation-wise, why would you put those in action? And then Dad reflects and says, this is perhaps where the wording in C7 came from, but it makes no sense. Why do applicants whose death is immediate have the option of immediate death? But those of us whose death is not imminent need 90 days of exploration, discussion, and consideration. Surely we on track two are being discriminated against. We have traveled the same journey and suffered just as much as track one applicants. All of us have decided after very long and careful consideration that ending our suffering is better than continuing to live with it. None of us needs an extra 90 days to think about it. The toll on my family for having to make these adjustments has been immense. I made the decision to pursue my application for MAID on Sunday, the 30th of October. And he goes on and talks about, you know, the assessment period and the fact here at the end, there were heart-wrenching goodbyes. Then the second assessment shunted me to track two and we had to wait for the third assessment on 15th of November to confirm that decision that I wouldn't be dying until January 4th. All of these changes followed by the long waiting period have been very difficult to cope with for my wife, my daughter, their spouses, and all my grandchildren. And all of it is so unnecessary. And I, and I think for him too, like this process of you've made this decision, you've come to the conclusion, you've shared this decision with your family, you've been approved, and now you continue to stay in that. So anyways, thank you for letting me share a bit of his letter that unfortunately he wrote, you know, in the middle of December and was not very uh, sympathetic to the fact that the rest of the world was going on Christmas holidays and those types of things. Tanya, thanks so much. I'm I'm really happy that you got a chance to to read that from uh, that section of John's letter, and in particular because you talked earlier about the toll that it it took on your family and and of course on John himself, um, and this idea that this arbitrary ninety days and it's also unnecessary. And I think you know Kathy asking about you know true choice and and what do you envision? I think. What's really resonating for me is this idea that, you know, it seems to me that John really truly felt he had a grievous and irremedial condition. Uh, and yet, why now am I then, as he's used here, shunted to track two? I guess the hope in me is that as we continue to see track two evolve, that we won't see it as this, you know, the opposite of track one. And we'll see that, as you said uh, just now, that track two needs to be seen in a sort of case by case or really looked at as, you know, this person 
you know, as you were saying, that many people in track one terminal cancer or something that, that we kind of understand the trajectory for. Track two is this kind of vague, you know, incredibly diverse category of what people are living with. So in your father's situation, him saying this is grievous and irredeemable, peripheral neuropathy, you know, incredibly painful. I have run the gamut of what you wanted me to do in terms of alternatives and so forth. Why is it that now I'm slapped with this one size fits all and now have to wait this time? So I think that's an incredibly important thing that you've brought to our discussion today. I thank you for that. The other thing I really would like to ask you is, um, you're the daughter, you're John's daughter. And you said earlier in our talk, you know, how you felt about some things on that day. You know, you've kind of processed since then and you've been thinking. Have you been able to think about what kind of advice would you give to a family who is navigating this kind of ambiguous space just as you and your family did? Yeah, great question. I've contemplated it lots, as one can imagine. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I don't want it to come across as the 90 days was terrible because my family did an incredible job of being in the moment and enjoying what was put before us. And, and I would always say my family is very good at that. My mom is an incredibly strong woman um, and my family is incredibly supportive of dad's choice and we enjoyed the 90 days. My point is that it's just, I don't know if that was necessary. But when I think about advice for people, um, you know, it's seven months to days. So we've had some time to heal. And, and first of all, I would, you know, proactively, I would always say it's a very important to talk forever about death and dying, right? This wasn't a new conversation. This wasn't sprung on us. You know, my mom and dad both always had very open conversations with us about all sorts of topics um, and death and dying being one of those all the way through our lives. Um, so I, you know, I would always say you want to have these conversations with your parents or with your spouses or with your siblings long before you ever get into this position where somebody is diagnosed with a terminal illness or somebody is suffering intolerably. Um, so that's what I would firstly say is that's why, you know, we're, we're on this conversation today. And secondly, I would go back to your values, right? Practically, I would say when you know your values and you know what you stand for, they'll always help you. And I, and I remember my dad in one of the assessments saying like, this is not who I am, right? Uh, he was a very physical man. He was very active. He was, you know, he loved to hike and golf and do all the things so he knew there was this misalignment. So I think all of us in the living realm uh, really need to be able to be clear on what our values are, because then when it's a misalignment, it's very clear to yourself and to others. So I would say those are the two things proactively, I would say. And I would say for families when they're in it, you know, I would say this isn't an easy journey. Right. I mean, there were some struggles. There were some comments from people that would say, oh, I didn't know your dad was sick. And it's like, well, where do I start? Right. Um, you know, I wanted a T-shirt that says it's complicated. <laughs> uh, it's like my status is complicated. 
uh, you know, both my mom and my sister had people who were not very supportive and were strong in their opinions of what they thought about MAID and what they specifically thought about track two. And that wasn't easy. Uh, I had someone say to me, so if I slipped and fell in the parking lot, I can choose to end my life. And it's like, hello, there's still a criteria. There's still a process. It does need to meet all of these. You know, it needs to be all of the things that we already know. Um, but I think it's just we need to have the conversation around that. So be prepared that this is a new way to die. And we don't know. We don't know this new way to die yet. And so we need to give grace to one another. Um, you know, I think having an advocate in the family was really important. And I am so forever grateful to my sisters and to my mom and to our extended family for allowing that role to come forward. Um, and I think that that was important as well. Um, I would say... I found it important to teach people along the way, you know, I am my father's daughter in that way, but, you know, I did have conversations. I run a business and I have a, you know, a strong team of people and we shared very openly through the process because you can't pretend this isn't happening if it's a 90 day journey. And in that sort of mix of people, I had people with very strong faith base um, and people who weren't, and we had really open supportive conversation. So I think anybody going through a made process gets to have that opportunity. And I feel a responsibility to educate others. I also journaled through it. I, you know, I, I've journaled for about 12, I think I'm in my 13th year right now. Uh, and I journal every day, just, I, you know, journal through it. And then you have, you get to capture the story as well and enjoy, enjoy the time, right? It's like this beautiful, peaceful, you know, I, I think that was one of the things that surprised me as we came to the end of the 90 days and we got through Christmas is like this sense of peace that we came to. And then on that day, this incredibly peaceful, empowering space my dad was in and that we were able to walk through that with him. And I can't imagine my dad passing any other way than to be empowered and loving and hold my mom's hand and walk into that bedroom and lay down on the bed and have his moment and, and exit with dignity. Thank you. That was an incredible answer to my question. And well, I'm going to interject with this and if, if it doesn't land properly, um, my apologies in advance, but, um, as you were talking and describing the piece, uh, but before that also the journaling, right? And, and talking about writing down those moments and those feelings that you're happening. Um, the most beautiful cardinal came and sat in the window outside my, uh, and I'm not home. I'm all the way on the other side of Ontario at my sister's house. And this cardinal, my father died in 2018. And my mother is convinced that cardinals are, you know, he's coming to visit that whole idea of magical thinking and Joan Didion and so forth. And so when that colonel um, came and visited just now, I thought that's jiving with what Tanya's talking about. And I think John was coming to tell us that he was appreciating that we're having this big chat. I love it. Oh, beautiful, both of you. Thank you. And I, I was imagining your, your dad walking into the bedroom on his own accord, on his legs, at his time, and with your mom and your family. And 
I appreciate so much your words of wisdom to other people because we know there are more Canadians accessing this. There are more people who have questions and want to know what they could and can and should and might be able to in terms of opportunity. And just like your dad paved the way for people to understand more about medical assistance and dying, you are doing the same, Tanya, and we're incredibly grateful for that. And hopefully people will hear and learn from your story. We're also going to link to the talk that you did that you shared with us at the beginning because people have questions. And by hearing how other people have done it before and to know that they're not alone if people say some things to them that might not sit well with them, to know that there's other people who have moved through that as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think there's this, I do feel like there's a bit of a gap. I think there's this role that somehow needs to be filled prior to application, right? If I don't want to go and source and just Google dying with dignity or the made process, it's like, you know, I know the Bridge C14 is available and it's, it's a great organization, but you have to already have had the application and you have to have already done a minimum of one assessment. I think there's a space that we're missing in society right now of just being able to have this conversation with people who have potentially have real lived experience as well as being able to just it doesn't have to be a, a medical person because it's just the process and the application and this conversation around it but a you know a heart to heart real conversation face to face i think i think we're missing that and i and i worry about you know god bless the made providers and all of the things that they do right but i i worry that they are having to do both of these roles right that they have to do the assessment they have to do the provision and that there's not this space for just having a conversation so that's that's part of the reason you know why i'm reaching out and doing the, these conversations because i i think there's a, a bit of a space missing for for all made all made applicants and their families. I agree. And I, I think the lack of education, the lack of opportunity to have the conversation, and hopefully your work, um, that was part of our motivation for starting the podcast as well, was to get that conversation happening in different spaces and in different ways. Um, because I think we are seeing through the stats that are coming through that Canadians want to have more control at the end of their lives. And they want to have more say in what the end of their life looks like, be that through medical assistance in dying, be that through a natural death, whatever that might be. But perhaps that helps us to live a little bit better knowing that we can have some say and some control potentially in our end of life. Well, like my dad said, like he's just a guy trying to get people to fear death less and love life more. Exactly. And what a beautiful note to end on. Fear death less, love life more. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's great. I do it with cheers all the time. Like, you know, it's it's uh it's late for you ladies on a on a Friday before a long weekend. So we can all cheers to that. And I think we will. And we will also imagine your dad connecting and helping to pave the way for all of us so that we can live well until we die. So thank you so very much for talking with us, Tanya. Oh, thank you, guys. I feel that this is important work and it's, it's lovely for me. Like now I get to take what dad did and, you know, layer on the lived experience and, 
And, uh, you know, my bird, I, I'll, I'll say, Carrie Lynn, my, my dad comes to me as a magpie. And all over the place, even the day he passed, it was, of course, cold and January 4th. And we walked by this tree and, and this magpie, like, stopped me in my tracks. And, uh, and I have a lovely garden and the magpies are everywhere. So, uh Unfortunately, we don't have cardinals in southern Alberta, but... Uh... Right, right. And I was going to... I wanted to tell you, too, I lived in the UK for 11 years and fell in love with magpies. And I know this whole one for sorrow, two for joy, but I think in your case, it must be one for sorrow. One also is John Warren. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, thank you both. Have a wonderful long weekend. I really appreciate uh, what you guys are doing and the opportunity. Thank you. And we'll be in touch. Take good care, Tanya. Thank you. So, Carrie, I know we said at the beginning today what a conversation to be having on a Friday, but I am so glad that Tanya reached out to us and initiated this very important conversation that we had today. Absolutely. I was so pleased that you and she had touched base and sort of shared the things that she wanted to share with us. Learning about John from a paper, but then hearing about him, you know, her voice and talking about how he was an interesting person, a strident believer in, in choice. I loved that question that you brought her back to about true choice. And was that something that John had experienced? I also really appreciated her talking about values and, and how values were important to him. Based on all of the things she told us anecdotally about him, I thought that that really made a lot of sense in how he saw the advocacy as being so important for Canadians at large, but for himself as well. Yeah. And we often say that, that people will die how they live in terms of how they connect to other people, in terms of what they think is important. And John demonstrated that. And the John that Tanya told us about really demonstrated that. That connection, you use that term connection, but then you use the term community and that real sense I got where he was really thinking of the greater good, getting involved as he did with Dying with Dignity Canada um, and really setting the tone and, and then having the humility, I guess, to sort of say, well, I got that up and ready and now I can step back because now that's got a life of its own and it's going to continue going in that direction. And, um, you know, knowing where he wanted to put his energies because he was a person who lived with challenges, right, with his health. so. Yeah, incredible. I um, I love, too, that idea that, you know, fearing death less and loving life more, that idea that Tanya said about um, vice to Canadians going through similar situations, to have those conversations about dying and death and to have them long before. And as you know, and I know, and, and what we agree on in terms of death education, long and long and long and long before. Exactly. And it was so great that Tanya wanted to have that conversation with us and reached out to be part of our podcast. And so listeners, if you know of someone who has a story, if you want to come speak with us as well, please don't hesitate to contact us on our website, disruptingdeath.ca or wherever you get your podcast, reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. And I think we should all salute John Warren and fear death less love life more and get all those conversations started when did we get here and how?
stories me.